0: World Class, Jim Crockett Promotions, Big
1: Time Wrestling, Mid-South, $2 Late Presents, Territory Marks, with Paul London and Zach Schaefer, the show that celebrates matches from the glory days of professional wrestling, from one man who
0: lives it, and another man who loves it.
2: It's our episode three of Territory Marks. We're growing
1: up so fast.
2: <laughs> it's a beautiful baby boy.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know, I'm excited. It's This has been really healthy for me uh, to yeah. to kind of put ourselves in this position to rediscover so many, and, and to just discover so many timeless classics that you know we are doing our due diligence and our responsibility to the wrestling world by dusting off these these gems and bringing them to the attention of the wrestling audience who will probably get even more disillusioned with the the current uh state of wrestling because the stuff that we're covering it's the real deal
2: i'm starting to find that with the the your picks yeah because I'm starting to see a little bit of a thread of uh connections between each one yeah and and then now watching the current product which it's neither here nor there if you like it great if you don't great too but I gotta be honest with you man like yeah I share that sentiment I I, I just it doesn't do it for me like this does the energy the flow um it's it's everything. It's everything that the 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 eighties specifically. We we've haven't toe dipped into the nineties or the seventies yet.
1: You're getting close with some of your picks. You're you're
2: on- I know. I'm verging on nineties. And in fact, I was looking at a match for a future episode going, Yeah, no, I better better scale it back a little bit. Um <laughs> I was just in Texas not that long ago. And was talking to quite a few people who remember the heyday of uh, World Class. Yeah. And uh, at the Sportatorium, and I gave a shout out to our show, and I said, "Well, you know, we're going to cover World Class down the road. We're going to cover the Freebirds. We're going to cover the Von Erichs. We'll get to all that. Absolutely. Um, but not today. Today, yeah. I think um, between the two matches that we each chose, I'd say heavy-handed hitting." is a good way to describe both of them. Um, putting it all out on the table, slugfest. Paul is going to be talking about a match from 1983, which he'll get to in just a moment. And I'm going to be talking about talking. Hey, I like that. Yeah. You like that? Green. (laughs) Suddenly a Paulie dangerously guys. No, actually Paulie (laughs) never adapted, adopted that, uh, (laughs) that accent. Hey, everybody. Um, You're going to be talking about The Assassin and Kurt Henning. Yep. I'm going to be talking about Terry Funk and Ricky Steamboat. We'll get to my match in a moment, but let's dig in to your specific match. Can you tee it up for us?
1: I sure can. I sure can. Growing up as a youngin in Austin, Texas, um, my favorite wrestler growing up, and and in a lot of ways still to this day, was Kurt Henning. I first took notice of him in WWF as Mr. Perfect. Uh so again thank thank you to YouTube for, you know, having so many gems and allowing us to get into the time machine and and travel back. Uh because Kurt Hennig obviously, you know, second generation wrestler, his father was Larry the Axe Hennig and they're Minnesota uh, natives. And so you would think, oh, like, did he just go from, you know, what would be kind of AWA uh, straight to WWF? And not exactly. Like, he he came up the ranks, and it was kind of surprising to me to see that he had had a nice spell in Portland, the Don Owens promotion, Portland Wrestling. So, I I started uncovering these these Kurt Hennig matches and I ended up finding this this match. It's a coal miners glove match between Kurt Hennig and the Assassin.
0: They asked for this bout, the fans condone it. And you're about to see it folks, so don't go away. This glove of Dutch Savage was retired in 1974. The last time it was used. It's going into the wrestling hall of fame. And they're bringing it out this morning for this match right now. 1976 it was retired fully, Don. Was it? Yeah, they were going, going to go into the wrestling hall of fame, Don Owens has had it in the state. That's one of the most vicious type matches ever. Yeah, they're putting it up there now. Only one that's any worse is the cage match. Bar puts Eddie. it up there.
3: Oh, One fall to a finish.
0: Vicious looking thing.
3: Uh, Take a shot, and whatever happens after that, it depends on the individual. So, introducing <laughs> in this corner, two hundred and forty pounds, the assassin. His opponent in this corner, two hundred and thirty-seven pounds, from Minnesota, Kurt Hamming.
0: Oh, Kurt's ready. All right, the championship is not involved in this bout. Kurt better get ready in a real big hurry because if the assassin gets to that glove first, not gonna take too long. And Kurt is, he forget about the zippers, I'm taking this thing off now. Very simple, both fight for that glove, it's on that pole, that glove is laced with steel across the knuckles, it's a piece of angle iron that was straightened out. And it's taped to that glove. You can't get it off of that glove. Once you put that glove on your hand, you hit your opponent with it. It's over. There's the bell.
1: Both men going towards that glove. Now, the assassin, uh, Fidel Sierra was his shoot name. He would later go on to be known as the Cuban assassin. Not the original Cuban assassin, but... Oh. Yeah, he would get the permission from the original Cuban assassin to get the, the name of it. As long as he didn't use that gimmick in Japan. That was the stipulation. Okay. Um, but he would go on and do, uh, some, uh, kind of some job tag teams, uh, with WWF later on, but he'd spent, I think most of his time early on with world wrestling council, the, uh, Carlos Colon promotion down in Puerto Rico. And, but yeah,
2: infamous, right. That's an infamous promotion.
1: Right. Yeah. Talk about pummels and blood baths, you know, um, yep. this one's kind of no different. You know, this, <laughs> yeah. so the, the coal miners glove match, um, it is claimed and believed to have been originated by Dutch Savage, who was a huge Portland mainstay. He was originally from Portland. Or I mean, I'm sorry. He's originally from Pennsylvania. Um, so uh, apparently he was, you know, um, I don't know. I don't think it was Don Owens. One of the Owens, they were like, hey, you need, like, a stipulate. Like, you need something to you. Like, a, some sort of, everyone's got some sort of crazy match. Like, you need something to you. And he kept thinking, he was like, maybe, like, some sort of, like, Pennsylvania death match or something. Like, something, like, from my roots. And uh, so he, he kind of thought up and came up with this coal miners glove match. And... I would think that later on people would, you know, one of the more famous, popular uh, recognized coal miners glove matches would be sting and Jake Roberts from Halloween havoc, 1992.
2: That's the only one I know of
1: make the deal. Right. And uh, yeah. so people were wondering like, what the hell is a coal miners glove match? Right. Cause apparently even coal miners have never heard of a coal miners glove. <laughs> right. Or like it's some big deal, but it is a, a, a heavy, um thick uh i don't know it's like uh, thicker than like a canvas like something you would think of like as like dicky's pants material but even thicker than that yeah. um and it's a giant almost like a welder's glove and it has a strip of metal across the knuckles of it so it has a big kind of uh, knuckle forming plate of you know, some will say steel, some will say metal, but that's across the knuckles, and that is kind of plopped up on top of a pole um, that extends from one of the, the the corner posts. And whoever can climb and get to the coal, coal miner's glove can be the first to use it. Now, that doesn't always happen, as we'll see in this match. Um, but yeah, that match, that that stipulation originally, you know. Brought to the forefront by Dutch Savage from the Portland territories. And the way that you would challenge initially would be that you would come out and you would issue the challenge by throwing the coal miner's glove into the ring. And once they picked it up, that was them accepting it. So you would see these different heels kind of looking at the coal miner's glove being tossed into the match after their match or something. And and they would look at it and they would see the Bay face, you know, in this case, usually Dutch Savage. Um, and they might back away and not pick it up at all because they were afraid. Right. But then like with all the jeering from the audience and everything, most often they would, uh, they would get so frustrated. They would end up picking it up. And, and there were different <laughs> angles where heels would get tricked into picking it up, which would mean they now accepted the coal miners glove match. So um, I think it's, it's an amazing stipulation. It's very simple in a way because just it's yeah. like a legal weapon. Um, and so that leads us to this match, which took place in, in Portland at the, the Portland. Uh, I don't know if it's Portland auditorium, you know, or their stadium. I, I'm trying to remember exactly what they called it, but it was right there in Portland. And they, they, they show you putting the, the them putting the glove up on the pole and, here comes uh, the assassin and then out comes big Bay face, Kurt Hennig. He's got kind of the uh, cowboy fringe jacket on. He's wearing the trunks. And what really caught my attention about this match was we've all seen matches with stipulations, um, especially ones where you have to climb, whether it's a cage match or a ladder match, those tend to be the most popular when the bell rings they start kind of going at a bit of a slugfest here but they very quickly each start making attempts to get up the turnbuckle and get to this glove now in a lot of these matches like cage matches and ladder matches we see you know the point is you gotta climb the damn thing there's always some very uh, (laughs) slow climbing
2: We talked about this in the past.
1: Yes, and it's so it's so annoying to watch, you know, because you just know someone in the audience is sitting there going, "Like, what? Why are they taking their time? Like, prime up the (laughs) damn thing! Come on, I can do that." And and in this match, every attempt, pretty much every attempt, just about uh, is is a full go. Where that other, you know, if your opponent didn't grab you or stop you guess what like we're we're getting the glove early in this you know like we're we're going for it um one thing i really loved was like they i think Henny locks on a headlock at some point they end up tumbling out to the floor he's still got the headlock on um and the ref starts counting and dutch savage tells them you know like there's no count out in this like stop you know and so like they keep brawling and uh, early on in the match now this is under nine minutes this entire match is under nine minutes which is insane because they do a ton of action i mean it's it's not this isn't a technical masterpiece by any means it's not you know where you learn all uh, you know detailed wrestling holds and sequences and any of that kind of nonsense i mean this is a slugfest and early on when they get to the floor you see the assassin ends up uh, giving Kurt Hennig a headbutt, uh, but also sending him into kind of like the ring post. Um, now, the idea was that the assassin had a gimmick under his hood, under the mask. And oh. that's why later on, after we see Hennig uh, get some nice color, it's, it's a little tough to watch uh, footage-wise just because it's, you know, from 83, the quality isn't Pristine, but going with the great announcing, you can you can hear that you know Haneg's busted wide open, and he ends up going and trying to open up the mask of the assassin. And the idea there was that he was trying to find the gimmick that he had hidden in his mask um, because he uses that that masked uh, kind of headbutt as a weapon at times. Um, and then the assassin ends up getting opened up as well. But throughout all this, they're they're slugging it out and they're kind of fixed on this one corner where the coal miner's glove is hanging up top. Eventually, the assassin ends up getting it and dropping down only to, I think, take a swing and a miss and then get hit. And then Hannah gets it. And then there's also, I think, a swing. And they do the like the tease. You know, they don't just grab it and go right to it. Uh, So they continue to build that kind of um, suspense, you know, and the drama of using the coal miner's glove, and then, you know, sure enough, um, Hennig ends up getting a hand on it and getting the big wallop and the one, two, three.
0: That's it.
3: One, over oh, we
0: by knockout. Team. Three.
3: He knocked him out. This action has got to be unconscious. TV main event by knockout Ted Henning
0: Don't go away, we're going to be talking Hello. to Oliver when we come back We're going to talk more about this
1: too It's just a very straightforward Intense match That I keep saying slugfest, but it's just I I think that You know, we're One of the greatest punchers is In the match that you chose That we're going to see here shortly um, But I think in this match in particular, you know, there are so many fists flying just because it's it, they really are just trying to pummel each other in, in hopes of getting the advantage of getting to that coal miner's glove. To then, you know, once Hannah gets that glove on and nails Assassin, that's it. There's no false finish. There's no, you know, triple twisting M. Night Shyamalan ending
2: you know the, it's like this you is, don't have to hit your finisher five times to you know, defeat your opponent no yeah.
1: it's a still <laughs> bar across some biggest you know welder's glove like that's it there's no question yeah. about it and so i just really loved the intensity the brutality of this match um the fans bought into everything every moment every you know and again going back to the the quickness of of the sense of urgency that's really what i really loved about this match um, yeah. they weren't waiting to get stopped so that they couldn't get the glove i mean they were just going for it and they you know assassin must ankle pick hennig you know a handful of times just when you think he's got the clear way to go and get the climb up the post no he's got his leg still he's got his leg grapevine he's got you know he's just that 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 sense of urgency is really something special. And that's another thing that I think is really missing in today's uh, wrestling presentation. And, you know, I, I think that's something that truly adds to the magic that professional wrestling provides. And so to me, I, I absolutely love this match. I'm probably going to watch it again a few times later today. Um, Cause it just nice. makes me so riled up, you know, it's so easy to, to fall into, The belief that that this is legit
2: and it may very well have been in 83 you never know there could have been some heat there between the two of them absolutely
1: Absolutely. um so yeah this was great this was great i mean i also discovered that dynamite kid had a spell in portland as well and there's some dynamite kid yeah with like buddy rose and Hannah all in the same ring and so we'll get to those at some other point but um yeah this this I'm a huge fan, as I've mentioned before, of Memphis wrestling, but I think Portland wrestling is right up there in terms of one of the most, uh, I mean, it's just, it really laid the ground down for so many, so many stars. Um, and I think it gets overlooked at times. And so I would highly recommend anyone listening to, uh, Dig up some Portland wrestling and see what you find. You'll be you'll be pleasantly surprised.
2: You reminded me of just simply in this YouTube video you sent that Billy Jack Haynes was such a formidable wrestler in the territory of Portland. Yeah. You know, he was I only knew his career in the WWF for that short spell. I started watching some other footage of his matches and I thought, Oh, right. I'm sure we're going to talk about Billy Jack Haynes. Yeah. in the Coming months for sure. Really? Yeah. I was in Portland. Um, well around the same time I was in Austin, I was in Portland first. And then I went to Austin and when I was in Portland, I went to a brewery, uh, Deschutes, I believe it's called. Oh, wow. And, uh, was talking to one of the guys that works there and he goes, well, you know, I was, I saw a championship belt on their wall, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, you you can get a championship belt made pretty much with anything on it nowadays, which is really cool from a fan stand point. Sure. But um, uh, I saw the belt on the wall and I asked them about it and I said, did anybody wrestle here? And they go, well, yeah, a block up the street is where Portland Wrestling was. Wow. In this what is now like a concert hall, basically, uh. um, like a very high end concert hall. And so I thought that was kind of cool. I thought, man, there was so much, so much. There's so much history in this building, yeah. um, you know, in in Southern California where USC is. I believe the where they used to have like a Los Angeles wrestling. There was some territory down here, which we'll get yeah, to, right? Yeah. Um, which is now like a little convention hall that they use for comic conventions and such. But it was so cool to um, know that I was near hallowed ground, so to speak. Absolutely. And. Yeah, and, and this match is wild. It, it is uh, th- the the three matches you've chosen over the past three episodes have all been very uh, physically violent and um, hard hitting. Yeah, and there's been color in all of them.
1: Yeah, I, I yeah, not not by you know when you watch the quality of this match, it's hard to tell. And you're like, is he bleeding? Like they say he's bleeding, and and you can actually you know not to not to dispel anything but there's a slight moment just because i have the trained eye where you can almost kind of see um panic possibly uh doing the gig but um
2: yeah i thought so too
1: right 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 so it's like
2: two or three minutes in yeah yeah,
1: yeah uh on the floor so um it's not by design it's just that i i love i love being a mar. You know, I love being, Mark, I love being taken on the ride and thinking, well, hell, like they, they really were going at it. Like, oh, this was, they, they believed it and no wonder the houses were insane and they were going crazy and they were just, you know, constantly cheering in support of the Bayface or, you know, really laying it on for the heels. I mean, they just, they truly believed it. And it was so easy for the audience to take that ride and to be carried away. in what was being presented because it was presented as real as could possibly be. Right. When the performers and the wrestlers and everyone involved truly believes it. And, you know, and I think professional wrestling is as a whole, a very collaborative effort, obviously, you know, if, if you happen to be in there with some broomstick who just, you know, isn't going to move around very easy or whatever. It's going to be a long night, but when everything's going and and everyone's on their game, it's, it's, there's nothing else like it, you know? And so, and also just to say, you know, you're not seeing 20 super kicks. You're not seeing Canadian destroyers. You're not seeing um, all these things like funny enough, you know, that these matches that I've picked have really included a ton of, slug fests and, and just pummelings and, and fisticuffs uh, with the occasional boots and slams and all this kind of stuff because that's that's kind of really the core of professional wrestling. It's just doing battle, you know, and, and slugging it out.
2: Well, all three of these matches have had, whether it's been a stipulation uh, or not, they've had, like, tension throughout, right? These guys have not... These guys just didn't get, you know put together in a match for simply the main event, kind of like what my match is. Um, So there's a hatred there, at least in storyline, right? What I noticed in this match was I was accustomed to seeing, quote, an assassin uh, as a job guy in the mid to late eighties, right? Moving forward. Right. Uh, And in, in, in my, in my pick uh, the, the, the clash that it's on there's a guy called the terrorist and you're like <laughs> yeah. oh <my> god <laughs> you know and, and so but this was a time when this character was menacing this character meant something this character was quote real uh a real threat and first of all i love his tights because he's got um lightning bolts on them yeah. and i'm like oh is that like the lightning bolt surf company man um <laughs> But then I think the first time I saw lightning bolts on tights was maybe Tim Horner uh, back in the day. Oh, wow. And I think he had like a little lightning bolt. And I love that guy. Uh, I'm definitely going to get to one of his matches down the road. Yeah. But Kurt, you know, I think the the our audience will probably remember Kurt as Mr. Perfect. Yes. As I did, too. And like the next to Bret Hart, the the most technical wrestler i had seen at that time so seeing him just brawling it up and kicking ass and like you know getting color and and just having solid punches throughout was really refreshing to see him go like that i think out of uh, most people will cite like the nick Bockwinkle championship match that he had in awa as as like a a time when he wasn't mr perfect but it's a highlight of his career this easily could be a highlight of his of of his career because with that glove on, it's so important and right. it got diluted over the years. It did. But yeah, it, it makes so much sense. You see the glove. To me, it looked like it had steel wool on it or something on the fingers. You might have.
1: It might have made Chain it. mail. for all probably, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah
2: right? That, that's what I was thinking. You know, outside of an occasional body slam or atomic drop, it was just punches and hits. But that's all you need. That's right. all you need to sell it. And the importance, I'll stress this again, in my opinion, the importance of a crowd is so valuable because if that crowd was dead, mm. this match would not have the same intensity. Um, nah. You know, I won't spoil it for everyone that hasn't watched it yet, but you'll just have to see. Well, but Paul did. So it's all good. <laughs>
1: I, I, I'm sorry, but you know, I know that was, was, was so brutal in a way that it I feel like even if the, the glove hadn't been there, it, it still would have had that same kind of intensity. So that having that glove there as something for each of them to, to, you know, attempt to, to get, get a hold of, just added to the drama, you know, and and it's not always about a swing and a miss, you know, sometimes it's yeah. about laying them out and going up top and trying to, to add even more injury by not just hitting them, but hitting them from a, from a height of off the top and, you know, and, and then there might be a miss there. And so it's, um it's a real masterful presentation of, of a, of a timeless stipulation that doesn't quite get the respect that it, that it should, you know, in my opinion. And, and it's one that people might kind of sneer at. Um, but I, I think it's great, you know, coal miners glove.
2: I don't think I I don't see myself sneering at it. Um, What it reminds me of, though, at least how I looked at wrestling as a fan when I was a kid, was that Kurt would be maybe considered the underdog in this match because without that glove, he probably would have lost. I think the the assassin had enough upper hands at a time where he could have taken him out at the end. Um, So for me, I looked at these matches like, yeah, but if you throw the stipulation out then the good guy really doesn't win. And, you know, like, uh, what's the point? <laughs> and so as as I got older, I was like, oh, yeah, but that's how you sell this guy to the audience. Like, he did take him out regardless of the stipulation. He still won the match. So you got to put him above in the rankings, you know. And um, rankings to me were always important. Rankings come up in my match. Um, I think rankings are something we're sadly missing in today's product. Like you don't get to wrestle for a championship unless you earned it, you know, uh, in the sporting sense.
1: Yeah. Growing up seeing the wrestling magazines, like the wrestler, pro wrestling illustrated, um, at the back of those magazines for each major company and for a few of the territories that were still around, they definitely had the rankings. And so I started thinking like, this is, this, this is legit can't wait for you know kurt hennig i can't wait for him to move up the rankings i can't wait for the rockers to move up the rankings right no so yeah can't
2: wait for that that chicken lover uh, jerry (laughs) um yeah but but this match was a great pick you you know uh behind the scenes guys when when we're picking uh matches for this for the show i already have a match in my mind like 10 steps ahead paul (laughs) goes into this deep rabbit hole of like I'm just imagining Paul in his mind going, oh, I hope this is a good match to choose. Well, should I do this one? Or should I,
1: should post- I do that one? on my wall, just covering the wall, post notes everywhere.
2: Yeah, guys, in, in Paul's bedroom right now, on his wall is a map of all the territories and little pins. It's covered. No, I'm kidding. um
1: well, it's on that wall. I'm not showing it. I'm keeping the secrets.
2: <laughs> but it's true, though. You know, it, it, it's, it's a process. And to choose something truly unique, this coal miner match, like you said in the opening... Um, I'd only known it at from the Sting Snake match, and uh, you know, if you know the history of Jake the Snake at that time, that was not the highlight or pinnacle of his career, unfortunately. This was the beginning of Kurt becoming Kurt Henning, uh, Mr. Perfect, and to see where he was, and, and I thought under the mask, I'm like, that's gotta be someone, you know, a big deal, right? It's gotta be like is it Paul young is who, who is, who's under that mask. And, and so in the name you mentioned, can, what was his name again? Well, Sierra. Okay. I've never heard of that guy.
1: Sierra. He would, yeah, he would, he would actually show up later on WCW for a little bit. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he was definitely a journeyman and never quite made the cusp at WWF, but like did do some, some job tag teams and things like that. But, you know, yeah.
2: It, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it? Though to like see you know when, in your first match when we talked about Buddy Landell, to see him as a total jobber, right? um You know you look at some of these guys. I feel like Ad- if Adrian Adonis had continued his career, he would have just been that jobber guy, but he right. didn't. He like you know, that wasn't the case Or a guy like Al Perez where you're like, wow, that guy had all the skills in the world to be a big star. And why didn't he become the big star that he became blah, blah, blah. Um, It is interesting. It's cool. It's such a time capsule moment. And yeah, this match is really, the quality is not good, but it it's, it's like, you're watching an old VHS tape. So, uh, you know, watch it on a small screen. It has a better effect than on a big TV.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Uh, It's, uh, there's so much charm to it and uh you know I agree I'm really glad you enjoyed it
2: yeah thank you I want to know if you <laughs> <laughs> I want to know if you pulled up some fun facts from so so really quickly guys this uh match aired in July of 83. If you go online, there's dispute of when it came out. Some say July 16th, some say July 3rd, or something like that. Yeah. Let's just call it July of 83.
1: Yeah, we're just saying so, July.
2: <laughs> yeah. Do you have any uh, fun facts from July of 83? Number one at the box office
1: was my favorite Star Wars Return of the Jedi.
2: Oh, yeah. same, yeah. samers, same, On hashtag
1: same. The Jedi with those lovely Ewoks was uh, still top of the box office at this time. Yep. Uh, but the movie that really kind of stood out to me, it hadn't come out just yet, but this match would have aired. And then a week or two after this match aired, Kroll would have come out. So, Croshing. yeah, one of the really overlooked um, sci fi fantasy genre classics, in my opinion.
2: Missed opportunity, in my opinion, oh, to yeah. capitalize on that movie.
1: I agree. You know, uh, I think this was one of Liam Neeson's first films, if not his debut film. Yep. Um, you see Toby Jones's father in this film. There's, I mean, it's um, uh, it's a, I love it, and great soundtrack. So, totally. Crawl is a an amazing fantasy film, and and I can only hope that Kurt Hennig would have had himself kind of patched up stitched up and he would have gone and enjoyed himself a good time at the theater watching crawl who knows i i don't know that it would have been up his uh sleeve but um a few things i also just noticed i mean you know toys this was i think kind of really starting to be the beginning of a big boom for toys i think that 80s toys there's no other era like it there's no other decade like it um but the number one toy at the time was Cabbage Patch dolls. Um, I was not a Cabbage Patch doll person myself, but I was a Care Bear guy, kind of guy. And Care Bear yeah, I could see that came out in '83. At some point, I went and nice. saw the Care Bear movie at the theater. I don't know if that that would have been a little bit later on, but um,
2: who was your favorite Care Bear?
1: Oh man, that's now you really. maybe lucky. I think the green one.
2: Well, with the shamrock. Yeah. yeah. the shamrock. I thought
1: that one, I liked that one a lot. And, and you know, I still do the care bear stare from time to time.
2: Yeah. I bet you do. Is that your finishing move?
1: It, it does. It helps. It helps. It's how I, it's how I went over this past weekend.
2: For those who were wondering, um, uh, this previous, previous couple days prior to recording this episode, uh, Paul was in a, a championship match in Compton.
1: That's right, a title
2: match for the world title, the, uh, the 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 Compton world title. Is that how you would describe it? You could
1: say the Compton uh, heavyweight championship. They would they they call it the MFM title. Uh, and if you're in Compton, you know that that stands for the motherfucking man. And so. <laughs> Here we go. Sorry for you listening. You can't quite uh, see this, but for those that can see it, there we are.
2: I screenshotted that, and I'm going to post it on our Instagram. So if you want to get a shot of the comp to title, go to our Instagram page for that. And congratulations to you, by the way. Oh,
1: thank you. Yeah, thank you.
2: I was just going to shout out really quickly in 1983, in July of 83, uh, Metallica released their debut album, Kill 'Em All. That's pretty amazing to know that Metallica came out in '83. Yeah. For me, I think we talked about this on a on a previous episode. Certain, like Depeche Mode, for example. You go right. I, I was like blown away that they had come out in '81. Um, yeah. You know, I was not. It's not the music I was listening to back then. So if I wasn't listening to it, I had, it wasn't on my radar at all. Yeah. You know, and obviously this is before Spotify and all that stuff. So. If you're not, like, seeking it out, then uh, you don't even think about it. So, 83 is crazy. Were you a fan of Metallica in 83?
1: Um, Maybe not in 83. I would say I became a fan of Metallica later on, uh, later on in the 80s. Um, You know, this is the real Metallica when they still had their hair and um, they were making good music. Um, Yep. They
2: weren't covering whiskey in the jar, and uh, I, someone someone said to me the other day. They're like, "I like I like their version to turn the page so much better than Bob Seger's." And I go, "Everyone has an asshole; they're entitled to you know their opinion." <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, come on, like that is not the heyday of Metallica. This is the heyday. You know, Stranger Things. I love Stranger Things personally. I know some people don't, but um, when when you know this past season when they started playing Metallica and the guitar solo was so sick. I was just like, yeah, that is the time when my brother was so into Metallica. That's one of the reasons why he grew his hair out. You know, I was not into them. I was much more into bubblegum pop, but, uh, damn man, that's th- th- there's a reason why they're in the rock and roll hall of fame.
1: I agree. I, uh you know, the, the, the longer they went on, the less I became interested, uh, especially when they got their golf haircuts no
2: i know at least kiss had the uh you know kiss will put on an album right and 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 they'll be like there's new songs coming out from Kiss, and then <laughs> yeah. you see them live and they just do all their greatest hits because that's yeah. what people want to see they might you know because the minute they go paul stanley says it's time for psycho circus <laughs> suddenly everyone gets up and goes "P break it's a break <laughs> It's well, like a match with the future terrorist or future assassin in the 80s. Right, P-break, right, P-break.
1: right. Uh, These, I mean, you could pops possibly get away with calling someone an assassin today, but you say terrorist and you're getting flagged by somebody. One last thing that came out three, and I think it's funny, especially for today's generation, which everyone is so married and glued to their cell phones. In 1983, the first commercial cell phone, was released. It was the Motorola DynaTAC 8000x, <laughs> and it ran for just under four thousand dollars in 1983. Wow! So today that would have been close to probably over ten thousand dollars. Yes. You know. So the first uh, first cell phone, the mod- the mo- the Motorola DynaTAC, and TAC's all in caps, 8000x. Yeah, definitely would have been possibly one of those brick, you know, it would have made Zach Morris's cell phone look like what we have today it would have made it that it would have made that thing look small, you know, so this thing was probably who knows, I need to look up the picture of it, but
2: or Paulie dangerously, you know, oh yeah, when, uh, when he was the manager of the wild, uh, the uh, Samoan SWAT team,
1: <laughs> you could screw his- on the, uh, the antenna, it was like, yes, hard rubber and it screwed on. To the brick. Um, yeah, let's let's move into your match because well, I have connections with both both people involved in your match. I have personal
2: connections with both of them, so please. All right, well, then I'll get right to it. My match is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat versus Terry Funk from Clash of the Champions 7, Guts and Glory, which aired on TBS June 14th, 1989, from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. It was the anniversary of uh, the, the 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 army or the military, I only know that because throughout the program they shouted it out constantly. You know, we we want to thank everybody for you know joining us and want to thank Fort Bragg for all the love that you gave us and uh, you know uh, celebrating the the army, all the glory, and it is. It This looks like probably the stinkiest, uh, sweatiest arena that I've ever seen in my entire life because it was a hot summer day in North Carolina. Oh, yeah. And people in the crowd are packed in like sardines for this, you know, two-and-a-half, three-hour television event. Quick backstory, Clash of the Champions started airing around the same time that WrestleMania, I think, three or four came out. Um it was TBS's answer to WrestleMania prior to them having pay-per-views uh full time throughout the year. It was a free show on TBS, and it was top matches, you know. Um one of the top matches back in the day was Ric Flair and Steamboat wrestling a two out of three Falls match, Epic. I think that was the clash right before this one, perhaps. Six, uh the Rage and Cajun. Anyways, if you wanna do yourself a favor and seek out these old school Clash matches in their entirety, Daily Motion posts a lot of them, so you can go on Daily Motion, and of course the links to all these matches are in our uh, show notes, but Ricky Steamboat, Terry Funk, battled each other in the main event of Clash of Champions Uh, quick backstory on their rivalry, or lack thereof going into this match Ricky Steamboat was the world champion at the beginning of the year Um, he defeated... Ric Flair, I believe, in February of 89. And then they had a two out of three falls match, which Steamboat won, but then there was controversy about it. And then Flair won the uh, third and final match to become world champion. So Ricky was champion no longer, but he was the number one contender. Terry Funk, who was semi-retired, mostly acting at the time, he was a personality who would show up like as a legend, right, with his brother and a bunch of other legends to these clash matches. And at the pay-per-view that Ric Flair regained his title, Funk enters the ring and wants to shake Ric Flair's hand and ask him for a title shot. And Ric Flair says no, basically. And Terry Funk says, I was just kidding. I was just kidding about that. I didn't want to wrestle you. And then out of nowhere, he sucker punches Flair and proceeds to pile drive Flair through a table that does not break. But in storyline, Ric Flair basically broke his neck and Ric Flair was sidelined for several months, a couple months. So the storyline was Funk wants a championship match, but uh, he's not in the top 10 because he's not wrestling. So he goes on to wrestle a bunch of jobbers throughout the territories to get his ranking, and he ranks in at number 10, and he gets this match against Steamboat, uh, number one versus number 10, for basically whoever wins this will probably get a title shot with Ric Flair a month later at Great American Bash. Side note, Funk and Flair wrestle at the Great American Bash and anyways, regardless of the outcome of this match. And then there's another piece on this as well. Because Lex Luger, who was the United States uh, United States champion at the time, he was bitter that he was not ranked number one. Kind of makes sense because he's got a belt. Why shouldn't he? He's got the secondary title. He should be the number one contender. He's upset. And, of course, that creates a storyline after this match. We'll get to that in a minute. For wrestling fans, the following contest is a top
3: 10 ranking bout. It is set for one fall with TV time remaining. Introducing First in the Ring, hailing from the Double Cross Ranch in Canyon, Texas, weighing 241 pounds, the number 10 contender for the World Heavyweight Championship, Terry Fowle! way toward the ring from Hawaii. Weighing 237 pounds, he is the number one contender for the World Heavyweight Championship, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And the steamer comes to the ring. Don't forget, fans, to call the wrestling hotline right after we go off the air have not already called. I'll be joining Lance Russell for a live recap of this event. We hope to talk to Paul Dangerously, to Eddie Gilbert, to perhaps Kenny Long, and the new World Tag Team Champions, the fabulous Freebirds. That's tonight, right after we go off the air. 900, 909, 9900. And of course, we'll be followed here. Keep it right here in the Super Station for Death Wish 2 with Charlie Bronson. Pick up the phone and call us on the wrestling hotline. I'm looking forward to that one. Charlie Bronson, always one of my
2: favorites. And, uh... So the match uh, has its fanfare. You, unfortunately, I don't think funk at the time had ring music, but later on moving forward, I think in into Great American Bash, he used a, a theme from Once Upon a Time in the West, yeah. Ennio Morricone, which is super creepy and badass, the harmonica song, you know?
1: Right, right.
2: Of course, he's already in the ring when the match starts, but Steamboat comes out. You see his beautiful wife, his kids not with him at the time because they're in this sweaty arena. Little Richie, yeah, Little Richie, and who would go on to become a wrestler for a, for a minute? Yeah. But they start out their match. It is a chop and punch match. Like it is, you can hear, you can feel the chops from Steamboat onto Funk in this match, and then you can feel the punches. Funk. I know you'll talk about this in a moment. Funk hits Steamboat so hard. With his punches, it looks so intense, and it just looks like it hurts throughout the whole thing. Uh, It's a chop and punch for the first few minutes, but then the match kind of barrels outside. Steamboat, you know, jumps off the top rope onto Funk, and at one point, Steamboat picks up Funk and carries him around the ring. And Steamboat is a legit strong guy. I mean, he is jacked. But at one point, you know, it just goes back and forth throughout this whole match. Funk pile drives Steamboat on the, in the ring. He pile drives him again outside the ring. Nick Patrick, who's the ref, who's not one of my favorite refs at the time, he gets bumped, knocked out. And it's interesting when it, that does happen because it doesn't really affect the match, really. It's more like it just kind of carries on. The match continues to carry on after the ref bump. Usually those are the moments where the, the heel hits the face with, with a chair and the match is over. Uh, but this just kind of d- stretches the match out a little bit more. Uh, at one point, uh, Funk does what I think Flair has perfected, that flip over the top rope uh, where he gets thrown into the turnbuckle and flips over the turnbuckle and, and falls out to outside the arena or outside the ring. He <laughs> could have. It's Yeah, and it, like I'm like, wait, Flair did that. Oh, Funk did that. Cool they're just beating the crap out of each other back and forth for so long. The match culminates ultimately with Steamboat going to the top rope, letting out a big scream, chops Funk on the head with his hand, then does a Savat kick, which knocks Funk out of the ring. But then he, it, he knocks him out of the ring onto the announcer's table, which is right by the ring, which I totally miss, by the way. I miss having the announcers right by the action. I agree. Funk Funk grabs a microphone, um, from, uh, it's either Jim Ross or Bob Cottle's microphone. Bob Cottle was the, uh, it was Jim Ross on commentary along with Bob Cottle, who's another legend in this business. Funk hits Steamboat with the with the mic, which causes a disqualification. And Steamboat wins the match. Funk continues to try to beat down on Steamboat, but out comes Lex Luger for the big rescue. And it's a really interesting moment because, because uh, Funk... Looks at Luger like I don't want anything to do with you, and just kind of rolls out of the ring and takes off. So his storyline has ended with this match.
1: Then he gets the chair and nails Steamboat with the chair as well before that's right comes out. So he goes from the microphone to then getting the chair. So he like it starts to elevate, right?
2: Yeah. So yeah, he's got the chair and it's got to get even worse. And Steamboat as as intense as Steamboat is. When he gets hit with something, he sells it so well. He looks like he's going to die. Right. Yeah, so Funk's going to take more anger out on Steamboat, which is basically his suppressed anger for Flair. And Luger comes out for the save, quote-unquote. Funk takes off. That storyline is over. Luger asks for a mic and gives a very impassioned speech about why he thinks he should be number one. I'm going to play that clip right here.
3: Steamboat's been fertilized. Here's Buck right back again, trying to get another weapon into the ring. Buck's not satisfied. Here comes Luger. Here comes Luger, the, Luger, will help Luger. the package will help Seymour. Buck getting out of the ring. He wants no part of the U.S. heavyweight champion. Thank God that Luger is here. Luger's calling for the mic on the PA. On the PA, he wants the mic. What's he doing? There's been a lot of talk. Well, I have some problems lately, some problems with my arrogance, maybe, that I'm too cocky. Did I have a problem with maybe too much ego, a lot of ego. I don't have any problems, all I got is a lot of pride. Come on, Ricky, let's go. Well, look helping him out, thank God for the sportsmanship.
2: clash of champions is pretty much over at that point wow. but what it leaves you having is you've got this pending rivalry with funk and flair and then now you have this new rivalry with luger and steamboat which they also have a match of great american bash but that is steamboat versus funk 1989 your thoughts paul
1: um i i thought i thought this was An amazing match. Um, I'm a huge fan of both of these these gentlemen. I mean, Terry had a hand in training me. Um, Later on, I would go to work with Ricky Steamboat as an agent um, who helped me put my matches together when I was up with WWE. And so getting to learn from both of these guys, these legends um, really helped me more than I can really put into words, um, from Terry's perspective, just you know, he's a southpaw too. I think, and and that's one of the things that I think makes his punches look second to none. He has such great, you know, body control and his his punches. So he will he will throw in a few right-handed jabs, and then he'll come with the big left-handed swing and just wallop them. And who better to take abuse than Ricky Steamboat, who, in my opinion, sold better than anyone in professional wrestling. He was the best at selling. And that's why, you know, he wasn't um, a cookie-cutter, you know, kind of white hillbilly mullet type of guy. He had a very exotic, you know, Hawaiian kind of presentation to him. Um,
2: As and- the announcer would say, Gary, uh, Gary Capetto, he would say from Hawaii.
1: Yes. Hawaii. <laughs> and Gary, Michael Capetta is another one who I've been fortunate to, uh, to be friend over the years. And is
2: a, I love that guy.
1: Wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, but you know, <clears throat> getting to, to witness this match, like you said, it started off with the pummels and it, it bled out to the outside. I think anytime Terry has an opportunity to bump out, to where he gets tangled in the ropes. I mean, that is one of his specialties, and it just makes it so entertaining to watch. Um, and then you know the classic. It's a very classic uh, kind of forgotten thing to do as a babyface to yeah pick up the heel and kind of parade him around the ring so that the whole arena can can witness this guy about to get slammed down. Um, and you know. Terry, you know, getting thrown into some chair. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's a, it starts off really heated, you know, and then eventually Terry gets the upper hand. And I, another real great selling point, uh, pun intended, was I think when he hits the pile driver in the ring and you see Ricky Steamboat kind of lock up his shoulders as if he was like almost in a seizure, but like he yes. stiffens up. And it immediately sells neck damage, you know, to anyone seeing this, you're thinking like, oh, like that I, I think that that messed his neck up. Like he's
2: yeah. That that's legit. And so it's just I think funk uh drops like a knee on his back right soon after that too, right? and you're like, Oh my god. Yeah. It's so I mean, stiff. It looks like he's gonna break his neck.
1: You want a master class in selling, you watch a Ricky Steamboat match, but it it really truly is at its finest when you have someone who's able to lay it on the way that Terry Funk is able to lay it on. And, and he's not even just doing regular chops. Terry had one of the better overhand chops um, in the business at all. I mean, both of these guys had master, you know, they were masters at, at doing the chops as well. They would, I know Jim Ross would kind of sell Ricky Steamboat's more is like those
2: martial arts chops, those mar, those martial arts, that karate chop or whatever. I could go for a coors right now and a martial art chop.
1: Yeah, and a martial. Art- I'll take two of them martial arts chops and Bob uh,
2: Cottle. Oh, that sounds great, Jim. Uh, let's watch some Death Wish after this. Oh, buddy.
1: <laughs> you know, it's like I. One of the things I really love about Ricky Steamboat is so that that part early on when funks outside and you see steamboat perched up top and on the top rope, you know and funks on the floor and you hear jim ross being like the balance the balance of this man how does he do it um and (laughs) traditionally you would think almost anything other than he's gonna jump off the top with a a one-handed chop you You know know? like that seems like (laughs) right the, mo- the thing taking the most abuse are your knees right. jumping off from that. I mean, thank God they had mats there. But, you know, and at least Macho Man would do a double axe handle to kind of balance his, his uh, ball a bit more. But a one-handed chop is it's a lot harder than people think. Um, just in execution to make it look as legit as Ricky Steamboat would. And then later on he would do it in the ring as well. Right. You're sitting here thinking, like, oh, big crossbody or a big missile drop key. It's like, no, like a flying chop. But again, credit to funk. I mean, you're selling that move. The moves in, in the action are only really truly as over as the other person is selling them to be exactly. Yeah. Two legends like this, uh, going full force and, and selling their asses off, but really laying it into, I mean, there's nothing whiffed here. There's nothing kind of held back here. It, It was just a beauty to watch. I absolutely loved it. And yeah, when he hits that flying chop and then hits that kind of, Savat kick, uh jumping savat kick to the back of Terry's head, and he kind of stumbles out onto the ring announcer's table and you know, grabs the microphone and gets the DQ and then eventually I think grabs like the I think it's the ring bell hammer or something, and then eventually gets like the chair. That that just further played into the fact that he's just this wild man from Texas, you know, just this, this right. crazy Texan. Who you know? He don't care if it costs him the victory. Like he's gonna hurt this man, you know. And he picks up the chair uh, where Steamboat's kind of more on the corner and kind of hits him with this this chair shot. That you know, it was just I just loved it. The intensity. I just love it. They're not they're not always waiting for a clean opening to throw something. Like they're just kind of throwing it. And and to me that really translates how when it when it looks most real. You know, when it's most real, because in a brawl, you're kind of just you're you're getting it to where you're just swinging it. You're just throwing it. And you were absolutely right on the Terry Funk exit when uh, Lex Luger comes out and he kind of just glances at him and he sees Luger he's obviously jacked, even though he's wearing i want to say like some sort of bleached jeans with white cowboy boots
2: they're like z cavarici jeans. yeah they really yeah. are they're almost they are yeah
1: bleached like <laughs> z cavarici bleached yeah. jeans or something and he's got this uh tommy bahama almost like style like shirt on but like it's tucked in he's got yeah. these white cowboy boots that you you fluffy know, white shirt yeah it cost, costs hundreds of dollars he just so he just looks at him and kind of just lowers himself to the bottom, or to the bottom rope, kind of just, it's great. Ah, this is where I'm going to duck out the back door. And he just, yeah. Holds out, you know, just very nonchalant. He just, he knows better, you know,
2: he does. And, and you'll, he'll, he'll align himself the following month. He'll align himself with Gary Hart and the great oh, Muta. Yeah. Right. And, and cr- create a, a another storyline that will, that will culminate with flair and funk having an, I quit match on a um clash of champions which is another great match that'll probably get brought up down the road Sure. but you were saying how steamboat throws funk out of the ring right he body slams him out of the ring it's yeah. it's a very simple move but it's like you know get the hell out of my ring kind of thing I, it's such a effective move anyways
1: it so really is talk. it really is and and like you said he he executed a pile driver on the floor and in the ring and
2: running pile driver. running too pile, yeah
1: which i thought was interesting because it's like He's almost—I'm not gonna say moonwalking, but he's going backwards, yeah. right? He's kind of like stepping backwards as he does it, and then he so it's kind of a reverse. It's it's different, you know. Like I think you would yeah. think running power driver, you'd think you'd be going forward, but he's stepping backwards kind of rapidly, and then it <laughs> goes down into this power driver, and it just oh my gosh, like that—it that's as good as it gets. That is as good as it gets. Um and I thought, you know, Luger, uh, for all his technical limitations, definitely was a powerhouse. Um, Lex Luger is who they modeled Randy the Ram after in the wrestler. I don't know if you re- if you knew that, but I didn't know that. That was the the look, and that character was mostly modeled around Lex Luger. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, so. Um,
2: and Luger was one of those interesting guys who I think fans wanted to like him cuz he basically looked like He-Man. Sure. But he was better as a heel, I yes. think, when he, especially when he was in the Horseman. I loved I that faction as a as when he was a Horseman um because like the crowd is cheering for him. In fact, when the cr- when he starts hitting his moves on Steamboat, the crowd is cheering for the torture rack. Yes. It's a really interesting move because Steamboat was probably their top face at the time next to sting right. and for the crowd to be just on top of wanting to cheer the heel. I had never seen that up until this point where a, a, a crowd was cheering the heel. Now it's commonplace, right? Yes. But back then it was not typical. And this crowd is made mostly of like military personnel because they're right. on an army base.
1: Right. 90% hillbillies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. military, With the courage led military
2: hillbillies. We're here to defend our country. Yeah. Hoorah. Yeah, you gotta watch this whole um I'll put the whole clash on online because there are snippets where they're interviewing military personnel and God bless them. And when we support the military, you know, if you serve all that good stuff. My father served all that all that good stuff. Shout out to all you people who've served. Um, but there are some moments where you're like, oh boy, this is this is getting interesting. And I I wonder, because this this clash has some amazing matches that lead up to it. You've got the Midnight Express and the Samoan SWAT team, uh, two, two great tag teams. You've got, you know, the debut of uh, well, Sting isn't wrestling Wild Bill Irwin, and but then you've got like the debut of the Ding Dongs, which is goes down in history as one of the worst gimmicks of all time, next to Shockmaster. Um, so I get the sense when Funk and Flair start their match psychically this is me storyline building in their minds going let's put on a show that's going to leave this arena speechless basically they do but they put on the best match of the night yeah. um you know the, the dr Steve williams and terry gordy are on on this card the steiner brothers and kevin sullivan and the varsity crew the varsity club are in this clash it's it's stacked There's the terrorist, you know, versus Ranger Ross, which is cheap pop because Ranger Ross, of course, he's going to get a pop with this crowd. You know, he's he's like a G.I. Joe character. (laughs) So I feel like Funk and Steamboat were just like, let's bring it. Let's leave this crowd going. That was the best match of the night because it is the best match of the whole thing.
1: Yeah. No, they're absolute masters. Uh, This is a match that can and should be studied. Um, whether you're an aspiring wrestler or not, it's just it's perfect atmosphere and the intensities exactly where it needs to be throughout the entire match. And you can never go wrong with Terry Funk or Ricky Steamboat. Absolutely loved getting to revisit this match. It had been I couldn't even awesome. tell how long it had been. Um and somewhere in my library of photos, like hard copy photos, um, When I, the last day that I held the cruiserweight championship, um, Ricky Steamboat came up to me in the locker room and he said, let's get some pictures of you with the belt. And I thought, like, is he ribbing me or something? He goes, no, you're going to want these later on, like in life. Trust me. And so somewhere uh, in Texas, I imagine, Locked away somewhere. Uh, I have hard copy photos of of me in my gear wearing the cruiserweight championship for the last time when I had it, and those photos are all taken by Ricky Steamboat. Uh, wow, locker room. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. I mean, that's that's cool. It's something that's really special to me. And Terry being very instrumental in helping me uh, in my career and, and vouching for me for different companies to uh, to hire me. So. Um, That's awesome. and also having been refed countless times by Nick Patrick, you know, Nick Patrick, uh, I know he may not have been one of your favorite referees. He was, he was definitely one that I really enjoyed working with. There was um, a tag team match that I was in, uh, at one point where within the first minute of the match, uh nick patrick had gone down for the 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 two count the three count whatever and my tag team partner had kicked out so hard that he ended up punching nick patrick in the nose and busting his nose open and so whoa little accident yeah but just the positioning he just he kicked out and threw his arm up and popped nick right in the nose and nick the rest of that match
2: with a bloody nose (laughs) wow yeah wow Um, shout out to Nick Patrick. Then yeah. I, I got to say he's probably in my, he's probably in my top five. I, I'm just more of a, and I'm definitely more of a NWA ref fan versus yeah. WWF at the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I grew up with WWF and then I would watch WCW, uh, NWA style when it wasn't, you know, when there wasn't WWF to be watched. And so and that got me thinking too, real quick about Luger. How you were saying he was always a I felt like a better heel. I totally agree with you. Um I remember when Luger came in as the narcissist with Bobby Heenan, and he, you know, ended up having this big feud with like Kurt Hennig. And uh yep. but he was using the running forearm because they were selling that he had metal uh yes. implanted in his forearm. Now it made me wonder, and as I was thinking about it, as you were just now during this this podcast, and it was like what, he didn't. I don't think he used the torture rack when he was in WWF, and no, I don't, I don't why, think he did. And I don't know why, because he had already established it so well. Um, and and, and yeah. I'm curious. I'm curious what what the story is there. You know, who might have told him, or if he decided he wasn't going to use it or whatever, but. I I, who knows, you know, I don't know if if picking guys up It it doesn't strike me as something that would have hurt him given his physical uh, ability,
2: yeah, because he would go on to use it when he came back to WCW, right? right. Years later,
1: wonder if it was just like exclusive to WCW, but I don't remember him really using it. I'm not saying he never did in WWF, but I just uh, you'd have me fooled, I couldn't tell you a single time he used it in WWF. as a narcissist or as the American express, uh, Lex Luger yeah. doing all that stuff and going to body slam Yokozuna and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So,
2: <laughs> yeah, we won't be talking about that on this show. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's, that's not a territory anymore. Though, if we ever do an April fool's episode, <laughs> uh, we will do some fun gimmicks that didn't work in the territories. How about that?
1: Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds great. <laughs>
2: And I'm glad, too, that this match had overlapping storylines because, you know, moving forward, 89 quite possibly might be my favorite year for wrestling. This was when I was so fully immersed in story and character. And, uh, I mean, I just loved Ricky Steamboat to this day. He's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. So I appreciate hearing those uh, positive things you have to say about him.
1: Both Of these guys, absolutely positive. Like, I, I love both these men, and like, just
2: funk's the greatest heel of all time. Funk is definitely the greatest heel of all time,
1: yeah. I agree. I mean, people will say Flair, but Flair had that coolness to him, he had that slickness to him. Where there, I have met so many men, I'm sure you have as well, who idolized Flair in a way, whether it was yeah. his uh out of ring um proclivities, <laughs> yeah. but. Very few are like, I wanna be Terry Funk, but like I really I that's that's kind of how I aspire to be in life is like Terry Funk. I wanna be considered a dangerous Texan who is crazy and you don't know what he's gonna do and he can talk the talk and he can walk the walk and you know if I see anyone as a egg sucking dog, I'm gonna put him down. (laughs) Damn right.
2: Give me Flair, where's Flair? Well, this this maybe was uh, the highlight of Flair's career as a face uh, this yeah. year as well. Because, in my opinion, his match with Funk, that I quit match, is one of the best matches. Definitely one of the best matches of 89, for sure. But wow. we'll get, get to that down the road. What a great year, 89. 89 was a good year. Yeah, yeah. Some interesting things that happened in June of 89. For one second, on June 7th, the time was... One twenty-three, and forty-five seconds on six seven eighty-nine. So one two three four five six seven eight nine. Wow! For one second.
1: And that could never happen again.
2: Never happen again. Ever. <laughs> wow. You know who Matt Furrier is? Why does that name sound familiar? He played Max Headroom.
1: Yes, 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 that's right. I, for some reason, I'd stumbled upon something not too long ago where it was, yes, and he was also hes a Canadian actor.
2: He is, and we brought him up because, uh, when you were joining us on our Bloodsport episode, the day we met, yes, we brought up Matt Fruhr being in that movie Short Time with Dabney Coleman, which I think came out in like '91 or '92. Oh, wow. Uh, but Matt Frewer was on a TV show called Dr. Doctor, Doctor, it debuted a couple days prior to this clash on CBS, and it lasted for three seasons. It was it was a wacky doctor show. <laughs> um, Matt Freer played the doctor, and of course, every time I heard the name, uh, I thought of the Thompson Twins song, right? But instead, the theme song used, like, Doctor, Doctor, give me the news I got... Something like that. Doctor, <laughs> Doctor, I was
3: feeling...
2: Doctor, doctor,
1: yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a doctor in the house? Yes, <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> it's so cheesy, but but the sitcom would go on to like deal with cancer and AIDS and like really heavy stuff in a sitcom. So, you know, you ever watch Doctor, Doctor back in the day?
1: I'm not gonna say I've never heard of it because I had. Um, that could also just be because I love Dr. Pepper growing up in Texas,
2: <laughs> me too, dude. Oh, Dr. Pepper is the bomb!
1: Right. He also appeared actually in the um, in the Zack Snyder Dawn of the
2: Dead. He was great in that. Yeah, he was awesome. He was awesome. Matt Fuer is a guy who has been in. He's been around for a long time. Yeah. He, he was in a terrible movie called The Taking of Beverly Hills with Ken Wall. Uh, if you guys ever want to watch a great cheese fest,
1: wasn't he also the father, the, the neighbor father, in uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids?
2: He sure was. Yeah. He sure was. And his co-star on Dr. Doctor, one of his co-stars was uh, Julius Carey, a.k.a. Shonuff oh, from wow. The Last Dragon. Wow. Rest in peace. Wow, that's interesting. I have met
1: Ty-Mock. Interesting. You have? Actor, yeah. Very- was that a good meeting? Uh, he was backstage with a wrestler friend of mine, Jimmy Wang Yang, brought him backstage. and Okay. Um, Timok, uh Yeah. He, he loved those sausages at catering. So <laughs> very nice guy.
2: Um, yeah. I, uh, we uh, Dustin did a um, cameo for time. Mock for me, for my birthday from time. Oh, yeah. But time Mock did it as he's walking down uh, the street in New York. And like, he didn't even remember Half the things Dustin wanted him to say, or something to that. It's just very weird. He's like, "I want to congratulate you on your son and your podcast." Or something. It was awkward. Oh my god! I appreciated Dustin doing that. You're for the me. sausages in the brain. <laughs> Last thing I'll say about 1989 in June. A little over a week later, nine days to be exact. Batman premiered yes. June 23rd, 1989,
1: which I did see at the theater. In Corpus Same. Christi, Tiger, maybe it was South Padre Island. It might have been Corpus Christi, but I was down there with my father for a race that he would run on the beach every summer called Beach to Bay. And we made a huge plan before we even left Austin to go down there that like we were going to see Batman when we were down there. Because it was nice. Still to this day, it's my, you know, Michael Keaton's my favorite Batman.
2: Yeah, and I know he's uh, he's in the new Flash movie that's coming out. And everyone's saying it's that's the best part of the movie, and oh, like, as it should be, worth watching. Yeah, <laughs> right. I... You got gold. This has been Territory Marks for May. Next month will be my birthday month. Oh, so nice. Yes. We'll have to cook up something special for that one. Yeah. Um, but as the Compton champion
1: uh yeah that's right i'm we're, we're gonna we're gonna make some changes to compton we're gonna we're gonna really bring the attention to compton it's 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 not all it's not all uh death row records and craziness down there it's it's actually a lot of really good people down there and sadly taco Pete's appears to have closed down its doors oh no still one in inglewood maybe but um yeah compton's a wonderful town it's got a lot of really lovely people. And we enjoy what we're doing with the community and hoping that we can get more people out there. So
2: yeah, if you live in the Los Angeles area, you should definitely check out their shows. That's right. Compton me. Are they online? Is there like a Instagram page or anything?
1: Is there a champion? That's that's, uh, that's, uh, I don't pay attention to those kind of things.
2: <laughs> you don't need to pay attention. <laughs> yeah. to if, yeah. if they do guys, we'll put the links in the show notes. If they don't just eh, search it and, um, Support your local wrestling fed.
1: Right, right, absolutely. And, you know, support your historic wrestling matches. And click the links and check out these matches that we've we've spoken about in the past and currently the ones that we talked about today. And, and, you know, don't say we didn't warn you because they are going to take you uh, down various routes and paths to wonderful matches of yesteryear that will make you really miss true professional wrestling brought to you by the territories and brought to you by the territory marks.
2: So until next time, don't be an egg sucking dog. And (laughs) if you're a lover of chickens, maybe keep that to yourself.
1: Absolutely. Especially in Hollywood.
2: Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a four... Is it a five-star rating? <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We really... Bleh. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you listen to us on Spotify, that's great too. And you can find us on the internet. <laughs> Don't forget to check out our website at $2LateFee.com. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at 2 dollars Podcast. We'll see you next time. We did it.
1: You're listening to the Geekscape Network.